Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. And today we're, we're without Isaac again. We, we actually recorded these in opposite uh, order, Carrie. So like I made that great joke last last time that we recorded, which is actually going to drop after this episode. But um, so you'll have to wait for that joke until next week. Uh, but Isaac's out. He had surgery on his shoulder. So we're we're doing the, the two person pod. But we did bring on a guest, a friend, actual friend of the show, a good friend of mine, uh, Chris Hoke. Chris, uh, do you want to introduce yourself or do you want to see how I would do it? Oh, please, by all means, go for it. Chris Hoke is a gang pastor, jail chaplain, and are you founder and director of Underground Ministries? Which you might have to explain a little bit more because that's where I'm going to, I'm going to write. Also a writer, one of the uh, most engaging writers that I know, his book, uh, Wanted, is out everywhere. Uh, an exceptional look at kind of the prison system and people that are kind of de- marginalized and put to the sidelines. Uh, people who are unwanted by a lot of society, but are claimed by God as wanted. Uh, so Chris Hoke, fill in the details for us right there. Yeah, I- I'm not a very parsimonious guy, so yeah, I, sh- I should go back and get the transcript for this and make that my bio. Um, just call me in anytime you need one. Uh, it's like, uh, yeah, Chris, I, you for, 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 I, I'm, I'm an overchurched evangelical kid from Southern California who found my way into some, um, out of the bubble into some, um, rough neighborhoods in Oakland where I learned to read the Bible and learn about my community anew at age 19. that took me instead of going to Wheaton to UC Berkeley, which is a little different, but I was kind of haunted by the gospel and wrote a long thesis about the gospel, trying to integrate too many different departments and find myself uh, useless to society and myself and, and those on the margins for a while until I found a little nonprofit here in the Northwest, Skagit County, an hour north of Seattle, uh, where a guy was writing a book called Reading the Bible with the Damned. And I thought, yeah, that sounds right. Um, he was a PhD in Old Testament. So I went to the jail not to help people, um, but to learn how to read the Bible in context, because I think the New Testament was written among a oppressed and marginalized people and that's what jesus's stories were told around outcasts so uh but what i didn't expect was to be inside a small county jail and um for gang members to make me laugh so much and for them to say such cool stuff about the gospels and how jesus recruited people and i just fell into visiting gang members all the time who wanted one-on-one visits they called me pastor that was a bad word for me for a while um but i eventually got kind of ordained from below so to say and became a gang pastor did that for 12 years gave up the other careers I thought I was going to do, including being a indie rock star, which <laughs> was really, Brian, Brian knows how. <laughs> you are on the track. I mean, just how looking at you right now, we can see So it. close. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, when I could have been practicing uh, my songwriting, I was, I was late night chasing gang members around up motels in our valley, people I met in the jail. So yeah, the, the, a few years later, loving too many guys in the prison system, helping them come home, I realized was the key, not just doing Bible studies in the county jail on, on the mouth of the beast, but when they get out of prison system, integrating people coming home. I did that with a lot of guys that I really loved. And we started underground ministries to help businesses and churches um, get into a movement of practicing resurrection, welcoming people coming out of the tombs everywhere. So we're trying to do. Yeah. And it's a perfect segue into what we want to talk about today. If you follow me on Twitter, as at least as both of you do, you've noted, you've watched me lose my mind slowly. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't really slowly at all. It's kind of just happening all at once. Lose my mind about the uh, executions that are taking place and kind of just the justifications that that uh, come out of it and, and carry in their uh, 
pastoral wisdom was like, we should do a pod on the, on the death, uh, on the death penalty. Uh, and I was like, yes, let's do it. Uh, even though Isaac can't be here. And Carrie was like, should we, should we feel bad? And should we invite Isaac? Isaac? He'll jump on if he needs to. I was like, right, so I'm ready to roll. Um, I think this is one of those subjects that is, it's very personal to me for a lot of reasons, but I think it's one of those things that gets um, justified really, really quickly and really, really easily on the names of justice and God and all these other things, which we can unpack later. But it's also something that I think is like literally destroying the men and women who are on death row, but also every one of us, like all of us in society, just by the fact that it occurs. So we brought Chris on to talk about that, the broader uh, carceral system, and just, you know, let's, let's just fix this. I think we can fix this, like 45 minutes in on a pod, right? Get it done, and then we'll just put it out there as a, as a blueprint. I mean, Chris, you're already on the way. Yeah, and, and right. for a little bit of context to the listener, maybe, uh, obviously we, we know context. what Chris's context <laughs> is, uh, but Brian also wrote a book that was, I believe, long-listed for the National Book Award. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the book Will Fly Away also deals with a teenager who's on death row. That's correct. Yeah, and and just I'll just out myself. One of the reasons why I'm passionate, I always tell people I was philosophically against the death penalty, and then I was working as a reporter and got assigned a to cover a case that was going through the appeals process and then got basically forced to be a press witness to an execution. And from that moment on, it was kind of like, nope, this is, I'm no longer like just intellectually or philosophically against it. Now it's like a visceral thing. It's what led me to seminary. It's what led me to um, basically kind of writing that book, obviously, and chasing all these things. And, and now I just I have no chill when it comes to the death penalty. I can almost hear the other side of almost every other subject, but this is one of those ones, if you kind of front on me too much about the death penalty. I'm just like, nope, he's done. They're out. <laughs> They're out. And so again, follow me on Twitter at Brain Bliss to see uh, the evidence of this. I will go after anybody, including seemingly well-meaning Methodist clergy. So, <laughs> but yeah, thanks for the plug. I have no chill on this. I have That's no great. chill. I, I don't, I, because you shouldn't. Like you shouldn't. You I, shouldn't think, have... I think Abraham Jeshua Heschel said something just like that in his book <laughs> on the prophets. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's. I often get confused, um, <laughs> as you know. These dudes got no chill on this. The I, pathos of God. So, <laughs> uh, so let's just like start from there. Like, I guess where is the question? Like, when did you become, I guess, aware of? And, and we can talk about the death penalty, or we can talk about just like prison as kind of this corrupt system that systematically destroys people. Like, when did you become aware of this? And Carrie, I'll start with you because I, I know, I kind of know Chris's story and we'll, we'll get to Chris in a second. Sure. Um, well, I don't think that I have a, a ton of, a long story here. Um, I grew up in a pretty conservative part of Texas. Never, you know, I heard about the death penalty occasionally because if you're uh, growing up white and female, you hear about murder a lot. And so uh, I, knew that the death penalty was what happened when people committed murder, basically, um, and pretty much uncritically accepted that that was the way things happened. Uh, Texas executes a lot of people, so you hear about that maybe a little bit more where I'm from than you do in other places uh, that don't that no longer really carry out executions. Um, and then I don't think I really started questioning either the death penalty or um, kind of the prison industrial complex of modern America until college um, when I took a class on race and religion in the American South, um, which dovetailed really closely with do, just some personal reading on uh, the prison the prison system and the carceral state. So yeah, it was pretty recently for me that I uh, even started questioning what was 
what the death penalty was and why we do it. Yeah. And, you know, one an interesting fact, just because uh, I said I wasn't going to mention the paper I'm writing, so I'm not going to mention it, but I'm going to mention a part of it, is that 40% of executions take place in Texas. 40% of the U.S. executions take place in Texas. Uh, so, you know, it's just, it's, things are happening down in Texas. Uh, so that's why we need good people like Carrie down there uh, fighting the good fight to uh, keep Texas at least a little bit sane. Chris, how about you? I, I know we, we kind of got your background a little bit with the prison, but what, I mean, did we, you kind of already in that place with the death penalty at the same time, or, or is that something that's evolved or not evolved? Where are you at with that? You know, it's interesting. Uh, my, my work with the incarcerated uh, has yet to overlap with an individual that I work with or a company or pastor who's, um, who has been charged with the death penalty. Um, so it's, it's, I don't always get to tell this story, but I'm just remembering right now, one of my earliest kind of awarenesses of atonement and evangelical worldview and criminal justice was when I was very little, um, when my parents went to go see a book, uh, you know, the movie adaptation of, um, dead man walking and my parents went to see the movie and they came home early and i remember my dad putting the putting dropping the keys on, on the foyer table and just just vocalizing his disgust and so we came home early and i was like why what was wrong he said they made they wanted to make a, you feel sorry for a criminal they wanted to make you feel sorry for a murderer and i remember my sister's friend was there she was in high school i was in junior high and he was an atheist. He was a very vocal high school atheist. He said, well, isn't that what you're supposed to do as Christians? And my dad, who was a minister, just had made a, another sound of disgust and marched off to his office. And that, that opened a very wide crack in my universe, that moment right there in the living room. And I started thinking, yeah, why is my dad so upset about this? And the atheist friend is right. Like, I've, been, I've sat through thousands of sermons already as an evangelical kid in junior high. and um, is this forgiveness and mercy and redemption and salvation? Do people believe this? Um, and so I think that began my quest to see if the wonderful things we sang about that were worthy of song and worthy of pageantry and worthy of telling the whole world about it, if this all amazing grace and love was actually something that could um, have some teeth in, in the world. And so I think later on, as I followed that larger attempt to follow the gospel story into different hard places in the West Coast near me. Um, the prison and the jail was always kind of like the, for, seemed to me the logical conclusion in society for all of our questions is, is to go there, that that's where the gospel makes sense or it doesn't. There's something that you mentioned, Dead Men Walking by Sister Helen Prejean. I have a great Sister Helen Prejean story. It doesn't really fit the context of this pod, but I basically I got kind of almost as close as being cussed out by a nun as you can by one of her, uh, one of the nuns that works with her. Uh, for for we were, te we were texting all through your your, your yeah. campaign to get a hold of her office to get her endorsement. She for did. She blurred we the book. We were so excited, like, the, uh, Miley, like Miley Cyrus or something. Yes, yes. I was so happy that my publishing company was like, oh, cool, cool, bro. <laughs> um, but one of the things that she says, uh, it's actually the the uh, opening quote from the book, you know, that she talks about is, you know, it's easy to forgive the innocent. It's the guilty who test our morality. People are more than the worst things they've ever done. And, you know, it's the thing that you're kind of vocalizing about your sister's friend and your, your dad is this idea that there is, there's an inherent sense of punishment involved in both of those, you know, in, in the idea of the death penalty, that they deserve this, right? Um, mm -hmm. 
And, you know, you saw it just recently because there were back-to-back federal executions. The first one with uh, Brandon Bernard. And there was a ton, a ton of like celebrity and other outrageous people who never talk about the death penalty were talking about his case because there's a pretty good chance that I can't remember now if they thought he was... This is what I'm outing myself as not caring about whether they're innocent or not. And that's kind of the point I'm making. But there was a huge outflowing. But then it was followed up literally one day later by Alfred Bourgeois. I don't know how you say his last name, unfortunately. And he did something really heinous. Like he did something really, really heinous. And people... It was, it was, it disappeared, right? And so that, that's kind of my constant thing is like that sadness that, you know, that your, that your sister's friend, uh, said, the thing that you're expressing about, you know, does this repentance, do we believe in repentance? My, my feeling is that most people don't, but that's a whole nother podcast. If we really believe in this stuff, then it should be the person like, uh, like Brandon, right? The person who like, there's an injustice to the fact that he might be innocent. Like there's injustice and pain and we should be screaming about that. But I, what I always say is, you know, yes, even him, even Alfred, right? Even this guy who killed a two-year-old. It sucks. And I don't fucking like it. I don't like it at all. But yes, even him, right? Like if we actually believe in redemption, you have to believe in it for for him as well as the person that is, you know, Kim Kardashian West is also tweeting about. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's one of those things of like... It's something that you can't, you can't answer... You can't answer with civics. You can only right. step into theology or, to answer something. Like and, or logic. Like, there's no logic to it, right? Like, the logic that gets played... Well, okay, there is. But, like, the logic that gets put in place is a logic that is fundamentally skewed towards a weird idea of what justice looks like. Eye for an eye. There, this is a monster that has to be put down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, and, 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 and theology is... This is one of the reasons why I went to seminary. Like I said, it's one of the reasons why I talk about religious stuff and theology on my Twitter account all the time is because like that's the that those are the words that you can use to articulate this kind of horror. Uh, and it's really hard to do it outside of that because you're using the you know the words of of the empire, if you will, uh, otherwise, where you know if theology is being done right, it's subverting that and it's giving you a different imagination, a different kind of thing for the numbness that the empire is trying to put on your life. That's a whole sermon. Yeah, preach, right? I know. I'm I just waiting for the amen, but that's fine. I mean, so like, what do you think? Like, do you? How do we get through? Like, if there are atheists, you know, out there, and I, I hate putting the atheist versus Christian argument. Like, how do we get get that though? How do we find that compassion that somebody who has no part of our faith has in, innately? And then, how do we get that into the church? Then, in the places where you know it's not. Well, what I'm trying to do. And it, I might look back in five years and realize this was a bogus project, but what we're trying to you do right about now, our podcast, what you talking about our podcast, you can come on here and just, uh, just uh, dunk on the podcast, Chris, is that what you're saying? Oh, you're talking no, about, no, sorry, no, 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 no yeah. three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what we're trying to do right here, this could be stupid. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wield our mission at underground ministries, um, tentatively that, uh, we're trying to, our mission as underground ministries opens new relationships of embrace and trust between the incarcerated and the communities to which they return for our mutual transformation and resurrection. And so one of our, our, our main programs is where now that's growing, working with churches is called one parish, one prisoner. The idea is not to get someone out of prison and go to church, but to pair people into relationship. And Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy and the uh, director of the Equal Justice Initiative, he talks about his, his first point for this movement. In all his talks, he talks about the power of proximity. He says, when you get someone close to the issue that people are protesting about or talking about or legislating about, when you get close to it, when you get 
something happens with when a human being interacting with a human being that words, logic, legislation can't pierce. And that's his story. You know, if you've seen the movie, read the book, like he just sat for three hours with this one guy where the guards forgot him and he just connected with this person. Um, and it, um, he could never, he could never turn his back on the death penalty again. It wasn't just an internship for his um, law degree. And, and so what we're trying to do is just put people in relationship and create a little bit of some boundaries and some um, program around, we're not trying to save this person. We're not trying to disciple them. We're not trying to help them make better decisions. We're not trying to help them go to church. And we, we have some questions where it's also always mutual where when they're asked like the third month module of letter writing, when they're asking about what you did, folks in the church are reading, are uh, reading Shaka Sangur and his book, writing my wrongs. And they're writing a letter as well about maybe some, one of the worst things they've ever done or something that they've kind of carried. I mean, Protestants don't have confession booths, so we really need this stuff. And so getting them to enter that same question and as they really shrink up, you know, awkwardness, shame, well, why should I be writing this? Um, they get really defensive all of a sudden. And then the good news of Shaka Sangur, of Brian Stevenson, uh, of, uh, of Sister Helen Prejean, you are more than the worst thing you've ever done, all of a sudden affects these folks in churches. They're like, oh, I need that as well. I might have to tell this gnarly thing to this person in prison, but it's okay. I'm more than the worst thing I've ever done. So I think a lot of those truths can only be accessed by folks in churches if they're in relationship with someone. Like if they just had read a book study on that. I mean, leftist churches too. There's so many, a lot of the, we we work with a lot of mainline churches that are more liberal leaning. They'd be like, oh yeah, yeah. They, you know, if they read Brian Stevenson, uh, Sister Helen, you know, they'll say yes. But then once they're in relationship with someone, all sorts of subtext comes up in their lives where they're really upset or afraid or they start talking about domestic violence they experienced early on. Um, so I think it's in that power of proximity that we can dismantle, I think, a lot of what's really going on. But maybe it'll just be a big mess. I'll have to shut it all down in a few years, but we're going strong right now. <laughs> yeah, going strong. Yeah, well, I love... I've never actually heard... We've had this conversation probably a hundred times, just you and I, me calling you randomly uh, about things and we kind of get into, into some of this stuff. And that's the first time I think I've ever actually heard you articulated in that way. And what I really love is the idea of that we're not necessarily trying to disciple or get them into church, et cetera, like that. It's like true re-entry, like re-entry and like reclaiming of, of someone, which I think is really important. And I think that, you know, what that work does, and I think especially with progressive liberal congregations, why that's so important is we still, like somebody like myself, it's still very easy to other, you know, somebody else, like to never see behind the walls of the prison or into the execution uh, chamber. It's, it's easy just to only kind of let those people live. And I even just did it right there, those people. But to let people who are in, that, in the system live only as scary photos that we see on the news or that get retweeted into our timeline and stuff like that. And so I see the work that you're doing is, you know, is, is forcing us to see, you know, the other as the same as as us, right? Like I, I'm not articulating this as well as I'd like to, but there, that that process of like, once you kind of, it's the same thing. This is the thing that gets put into like uh, evangelical teenage mission trips, right? The idea that we're going to break their hearts so that when they come back, they'll see injustice uh, everywhere they go. Um, and this is just a more advanced, better theologically you know, based version of, of that, where you're trying to get people to be able to see the injustice and see the pain and see these people as actual people rather than just kind of figures or stats in a book or something they can drop off in a uh, kind of a conversation to get uh, progressive cred. I'm going to stop talking now before I start getting too uh, too cynical. But uh, I love that. Carrie, do you have thoughts on that? 
love what's been said. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just realized, I just, yeah, Chris and I are talking a lot. And so I don't want to, yeah. Yeah. I'm just, uh, I love what's been said. I don't think I have much of a comment on it. I think I do have a question though, is like, maybe just as a starting point, what would you say to someone who was maybe like me in middle school or high school who was pretty uncritically accepting of the death penalty and maybe didn't think that it was necessarily good, but maybe it was a necessary evil in society. What would I say? Yeah. Like, what would you say to say if you were in a conversation with someone like that? I, 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 I think I've been more tempered by seeing how radical this belief is uh, instead of just kind of like shaming people who don't hold it. I think it, I think it makes them maybe the more I get in touch with my own anger and my own inner violence, uh, the more I can totally understand wanting to destroy people have been violent and i would I, I guess i would begin especially speaking with younger people like yeah i mean i i love my little boy and i just want to clobber him sometimes when he pisses me off so i understand if there's someone in society who's murdered somebody just desire to the desire to say you're done we we end you there's already a, a population control thing on this globe so, but so I guess I would want to, I don't know if I could say that at youth group, but I would want to, to say, you know, that's not a, I don't think it's a wicked idea. It's just not, we haven't yet stepped into the realm of holiness. So if we were in a church, I would say, if you're here in a church, we're trying to step towards a larger imagination that we call the heart and the kingdom of God. And if we're, we're not just wasting our time here on a Sunday, I would hope that there's a sincere desire that we want to learn an even greater in a divine way um and it's going to be hard and it violates our more just basic common sense um and uh, that's why jesus himself got killed and so let's go back to the easter liturgy and let's talk about humans desire to kill and dispose of people that they don't want to tolerate and why can't we tolerate it and how do we enter the presence of a god who can tolerate all of us yeah the word you use that really tracks with me as imagination. And Carrie, you mentioned it too, uh, which is the idea of like, well, this makes sense and this is the way, right? Like this is the only way. And to me, that always strikes me as a lack of imagination, a lack of a kind of a, a seeing the world, a potential for the world that's, you know, uh, we don't see any potential for the world. Like I always go back to my, uh, my, my, uh, I was gonna say Stan, but I don't even know how you use that. Cause I'm old, but, uh, <laughs> but Walter Bergerman's book, uh, prophetic imagination, which he's always talking about this idea of like the Royal consciousness, the Royal consciousness does not want imagination because that threatens power. Whereas the prophets were telling us that there is this, there's inherent power in having imagination for saying, what if, or there's possibility. And so that, that's how I would have kind of, I, um, address that in youth group. If I was kind of doing that or that came up. And then, but I think that that spreads across all kinds of systems, right? Like it spreads across the idea of like capitalism and violence just in general. And, and then like, I know, Chris, we want to talk about a little bit about just, you know, the general kind of state of uh, prisons. You know, all of that is, there's an assumption there that this is the only way that we can re rehabilitate, quote unquote, or redeem people. And and that's fundamentally just like a lack of sending imagination. Them, sending them to prison? I, I th Yeah, I think that there's a lot. Of, I think that that's how people think, is that, that that's the way, that that's the only way that they can kind of be fixed. Does that make sense? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think that. No, I don't either. I'm saying I, I think. No, 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 I don't think, I don't think people think that. Oh, really? 
Yeah, I, I mean, maybe there's like a really thin patina of justification, like, oh yeah, maybe maybe they maybe get rehabilitated or something. I think it's just a very simple system of human disposal. Like the oh. garbage trucks come by and they take your trash. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Your, but I think that if you ask, somebody, I don't think there's any hope or general desire for rehabilitation no. or recycling. I no, think no, it's no, just no. Throw them in the dump. I, I totally agree. But I think that if you ask most people rehabilitation is going to be a word that comes out of their lips at some point, because I think that that's been part of the narrative that's pushed, that these are, that they're supposed to be rehabilitated in the, in the system. Right. But, but and that's, that's kind of yeah, what I was getting I, at. I think that idea is gone. Really? Hmm. I think, yeah, pro, pro prison folks, pro criminal justice folks that, that don't even pretend or lean, lean towards that. It's just, it's all about justice and safety that there's, there's rehabilitation is kind of left the lexicon of the courtroom or the newsroom, man. Hmm. Well, maybe I, a rare moment of optimism until we get canceled then, I guess. I was giving, I was giving them the benefit of the doubt. I, I, I wonder if that well, is... Well, it also might be just kind of a generational divide um, because I feel like you probably grew up hearing rehabilitation as a narrative. But like, I, I mean, as I grew up in Texas in uh, more recently than you did, <laughs> in, a, in a state that that executes like 40% of the uh, people who are executed every year in the U.S. I, I don't really remember hearing anything about rehabilitation. It is a lot about justice and, yeah. and punishment. Or safety. Do you hear safety? Yeah. Yeah. The prosecutors are keeping the community safe. Mm -hmm. uh, just, uh, uh, you know, uh, call out to the fact that this was our boomer reference of, of the episode uh, where my age outs me. Are you uh, a boomer, bro? I am not. I am not. This comes up every episode. I am not a boomer, but I always say something. Uh, <laughs> it comes up every episode. Yeah, it literally comes up well, every episode. Well, but I think this also, it also points to how new this idea is in American yes. society. Well, it's not necessarily new, but I think that this iteration of it's pretty new because I, I mean, I am not old enough to remember like, I never heard Bill Clinton give a speech. Like I don't remember any of Bill Clinton's speeches, but right. That was the, I mean, but that was really when they started talking about super predators. They started characterizing young black men as like the most dangerous possible people. And we need to get them off the streets and when prison populations really boomed. Right. So, I mean, it's pretty recent, like within, within just a couple of generations of living memory. Yeah. Um, I mean, learning the history has been, has been really helpful for me over the years of trying to understand this machine I'm dancing with. Uh, uh, so mass incarceration, when I've been looking at the graphs and I like bring up the slide when I you know, give a small thing at churches or a college, it only hit me this year. The, the rise of mass incarceration is synonymous with my lifespan. Like it starts really about 80, 81 when things start jumping and I was born in 81. And so... That is very recent. So showing, you know, the graphs of how unique America is to other countries is one graph. That, so that helps unnormalize it. Like, oh, this isn't just this normal thing of executing and incarcerating human beings. This is a uniquely and wildly off the charts American issue. Um, and so one of them is, is, you know, versus other countries, but then also in time, like it, the incarceration rates were rather low uh, in death penalty rates. Um, and then they jump in the late 70s, early 80s. But as far as the discourse of, I mean, we can talk about the rise of mass incarceration, but the note about rehabilitation is really interesting because you get into prison abolition um, literature. And here's a really good one, by the way, I brought um, Lee Griffith, The Fall of the Prison, Biblical Perspectives on Prison Abolition. Mm. As the kids say today, this is fire. 
Uh, <laughs> you it's, stand it's that, amazing. That, right, that's I can't what believe it, is. it was written in the seventies. It's crazy. Like it makes William Stringfellow look mellow. Um, <laughs> but just how biblical it is. Um, anyway, as you read about abolition, you 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 learn about how the rhetoric of rehabilitation has always been part of the creation of the carceral state. And there's a really complex, I don't know, contested narrative there. So even the beginning of incarceration and solitary confinement in America has a religious history that's connected with rehabilitation. So they would just like flog people, tar them, skin them in the colonies, you know, just the spectacle of violence and death. And then it was the Quakers, those blessed um, contemplatives that stepped up and said, hey, what if human wrongdoing isn't just something that needs to be punished in their bodies, but what if um, they just need some time alone? They need some stillness. They need some quietude. They need some prayer, which is what we do. So it seems like a pretty radical thing if you think about it. So they, instead of having them be executed in the public square and tortured, they created these cells in Philadelphia, the Quakers did, um, where they could criminals could like be still and be alone and have some solitude. And what, what happened, as you might have guessed, is um, people started to lose their minds. And so when you're not in a, a loving, disciplined kind of monastic place, people in absolute isolation started to lose their minds. Um, and with it, Quakers, God bless them again, they shut it down. They had the good sense to shut it down a decade or so later. But by then, uh, capitalism had gotten a hold of this thing called these prisons. And so instead of the Pennsylvania school, Eastern State Prison, they started the Albany School of Prisons, which is like, hey, we can detain all these people and they're a captive labor force. And so in the Albany School in New York, that's where prisons took off. But it's interesting that we have some sin on our hands, or some, some, some blood on our hands, we have some guilt on our hands as I wouldn't associate myself with rehabilitative Christian contemplatives that our failed experiment got this dark party going. So just to be aware that rehabilitation is at right at the beginning and it oftentimes gets us into trouble. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, uh, my view of the prison system in general is that it every step of the way is, is designed to dehumanize and to separate and to kind of destruct people. I mean, you see it in every single, like the thing that always kills me is the idea of like no physical touch. And so that's something, again, with teenagers um, that, you know, you have to bring it up carefully without not sounding like a creep. But the idea of like, what, is, what would it be like to never, like think about never ever having personal contact or physical touch with somebody. Um, and then you start from someplace like that, which is something we take for granted, I think, a lot of times. And then you kind of just build the argument for them about what does it look like? What does it feel like? Why do these things happen? Uh, because you quickly get away from the idea of uh, whether it's rehabilitation or you know justice and keeping people safe. And you get to a place of, well, this is just the destruction. Like you said, Chris, you know, this is throwing people in the, in the dumpster. And as a segue, I, I'd be interested to hear more, I guess, about your thoughts on that. Because I know... That's something you you care about a lot. This idea of like what you know, what, how the system works to kind of dispose of people like uh, systematically. And I, I'm I'm rephrasing, I'm paraphrasing, so you can say it correctly and better than I just did. I'm sure. Correctly, I am. Yeah, I mean that was an image that actually came through writing a lot of the stories and essays that became my book. Wanted um, is there? There was a story um, we're reading about. We're reading some some New Testament letters with some homeless youth and in. in in the U district of Seattle. And so some of the, some of the youth were telling a story of uh, being locked in a dumpster one night. Cause it was the only place with dry cardboard to sleep. And then that theme 
just kind of grew through my writing. And I kept realizing that is um, we just have more elaborate dumpsters where, where human beings get locked, locked up. And so I, uh, uh, that, I think that was the beginning is, is working with homeless youth that kind of gave me that image. And it, and it just has stayed with me. And I've realized even, I mean, the two ways that I see prisons is either as social death. Lisa Gaither wrote a beautiful book on solitary confinement where she talks about social death and prisons as mass tombs, which is generally how we talk about it the most. If we're, how do we bury people? Um, we've got 2.4 million people socially dead. And how do we practice resurrection through reentry in underground ministries? But so social death in tombs is one analogy. But another one, I think is maybe is synonymous, but it's a little distinct to me. The prison system, not as tombs, but as landfill. And how we just remove the unwanted, in a, in a, or we throw away half of the stuff that we have, or that's slightly broken or um, outdated, that we just throw things away and we're okay with that. And I think you, that culture is how what we do with human beings as well. Um, and so, if, if you're in a if either either way you're buried, right? Whether you call it a tomb or you call it a landfill, it's it's human burial, it's human disposal on on an unprecedented level in human history. I think that's uh, I haven't heard it. I'm connected to like the human landfill or the human tomb before. That's really interesting to me. Um, and I also think it, it serves as a way to connect, uh, talk about the carceral state, uh, the death penalty, the prisons to creation care, which I think tends to be a conversation in American churches uh, that is like those crazy environmentalists who like want to care for the earth. But anyway, I was just noticing the connections between to like, I think really deep flaws in American culture, which is like, we, we're not caring for the earth and we're not caring for the humans that, that Jesus tells us. And Jesus tells us to care for both of those things. I don't know. Does that come up? At, I mean, are those conversations, are those uh, two things that are like in conversation at all in, in discussions about the prisons? Cause they can't be good for the environment. <laughs> I, I hadn't thought about it in this way, but I, I, I'm so grateful for you making that connection care. Cause what that makes me think of like, right. I'm like, all right. The way trash landfills do affect the land and the water and the soil. Do prisons, the human landfills, affect the land? And what came to mind to me, and I'll just have to explore this verbally with y'all, is the growth of prisons um, always happens, like, at least in the last several decades, not in urban areas, but they're always in the far-flung far parts of the state, where on one hand, it makes sense that you want to just put you know, dump sites where no one you know, the low-value low land, really cheap. And, hey, we don't want in our backyard put the human tr trash, the normal trash over there. But where it's also connected to the health of the land is as small farms have dried up across America and, um, and small farmers have, um, have gone belly up and really struggled and small towns have really uh, been hurt because of um, healthy, small-scale agriculture is being beat out by big ag, right? A lot of these small towns are passionately lobbying governors and uh, the prison system saying, please build a prison in our town because it's a boom. It's a way to resurrect a small town. You've, you've got three to 400 people that now have jobs and, and, and pensions, and then you can build a, a Best Buy and, uh, and an Applebee's, and then maybe... Um, some taxes go into fixing the middle school and the library. And so a lot of these towns that, have, so I guess the, the death of small, healthy agriculture is really connected to the, the growth of, of prisons and communities wanting prisons uh, economically. I don't know. Is, 
that's a connection I see right there. I don't know if that's worth filling in together. I think that's interesting because my family is from Appalachia, um, which uh, has been ravaged by mountaintop removal. And, you know, when the coal's gone, the, the earth is useless and like the water is useless, like for drinking poisoned water. <laughs> and, uh, but like, that's also where a lot of prisons are being built is in West Virginia and in Southwest Virginia, where my family's from. And so, yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting connection that I hadn't thought about is that what there's nothing else. Once capitalism is ruined the land, there's nothing else to, to do with it. Yeah. And the connection really. that I, that I, you know, just making from here recently, and I'm, I might get this partially wrong, uh, first time ever. But um, in uh, Western uh, Wisconsin, they had a private prison that was not filling up fast enough. And so when a lot of the kind of ICE raids and where they were kind of uh, kidnapping people uh, and securing them, the the prison was like, oh, well, we have this building. Let's fill it up. And so I, I see there's a connection there. Like if you have the building, right? Like if suddenly this comes in, it becomes a validation. Like the stuff that you're talking about, Chris, which I don't think are necessarily bad. Like people having jobs and, and revitalizing a small town like on its face isn't bad. But when, when, when you have it through this prison, right, it creates a justification for, for using the prison, whether it's in, uh, as far as like incarcerating, you know, kids or whatever, because they had a gram of pot or whatever. I'm so out of like, I don't know anything about drugs. I have no idea if a gram of pot is a lot. <laughs> That's, I just outed myself. Uh, but anyway, but like, you know what I'm saying? is like, the, 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 it becomes a justification. So it's like, well, these people have to keep their job because this town relies on this prison. So let's fill it up with uh, quote unquote illegals. And then then everybody is, is happy. And so it just becomes this weird justification. That's an industry. Yeah. I thought you said yeah. ministry. Yeah, industry. Yes, it is. Well, and now it's almost backfired um, because of the, I mean, because of COVID, like if you look on the hotspot maps, like the, it's like colleges and prisons, like towns with colleges and prisons are where the hotspots are. Um, But prisons, unlike colleges, which make a lot of rich people, a lot of money, (laughs) the people in prisons uh, have been like abandoned. Like I think I mean, like the ast- the cases in Texas, at least, are astronomical. And like 80% of the people who have died from COVID in Texas prisons have yet to be charged with a crime at all. And so I was wondering, I guess, Chris, like how COVID is affecting your ministry and, and the people that you know who are in the system. First off, I'm just rocked by what you just told me about 80% of the incarcerated who have, who have tested positive with COVID. The way I would hear that, they're not in prison, they're in jail. And so they're just they're just awaiting charges. Yeah. And so they're so they're detained in jail, which is even scarier because for people listening, like jail is where you go when you're arrested and you wait your charges. Prison is where you go. Is that's the human warehouse. That's the landfill. And you and only poor people are in jail because if probably if and the three of us got charged, even if we were facing felony charges, people in our wider family networks would put money together and we'd bail out. And so we'd await, we'd go to our court dates, but we would not be detained while we awaited our courts. Um, and so only the poor are in jail. So that's really disturbing, 80%. So how has COVID affected the, our, our work among the incarcerated? Most tangibly, I mean, I could try to give like a survey of how it's affecting incarceration. But I think what's most interesting to me is two of our guys connected with uh, teams and churches, one parish, one prisoner, we call it OPOP, uh, with their OPOP teams. Their releases last uh, this last year were in March 1st and 2nd, both coming here to Skagit County. And they were back-to-back, March 1st and 2nd. And they've been spending a year writing letters, building trust, 
uh, building the reentry plan, storytelling and fundraising within their churches to, you know, take them to courts and put in the first month's rent deposit to get them into a clean and sober house, all this planning. But, and even learning about the first month means a lot of time together, whether it's just going to lunch or taking a walk, it's just time together. March 8th or 9th, our state went into um, quarantine. And so these guys where they had the resources, clean and sober houses, clothes, but with this, all this sudden sense of relationship taken away and these good, good people in churches obediently going into very tight quarantine, they really floundered. One of the, one of the guys had some family in the area so he could get some relational stabilization and he didn't just spiral. But the other guy had a good clean and sober house, but just no relationships to go to. And he quickly, by the second month, you know, just doing like these Google Duo video calls, the few people on his team and having some church folks just kind of drop by and roll down their window two inches and kind of hand something to him. He didn't get it. I mean, it, it, it was just hard to see. I think all of America is struggling with isolation, which is what the incarcerated deal with, with kind of like this don't, don't touch me thing, which is something that the poor and the marginalized have always felt that don't come near me. The social distancing has always been there. Right. And so for them to, I mean, now we get it in America, but in that first week, these guys out of prison, they thought this was just another, you know, white people bullshit thing. All of a sudden say, Oh, you're going to get me sick. And they took it hard. And to, so to not have their uh, relational networks around with them and especially the don't touch me thing. I saw one guy spiral pretty quickly and him go back to old contacts, old girlfriends getting high together. And he was locked up again within about two months. So that broke my heart to see, and it emphasized for me how much relationship and contact is so essential. And I've written about that, about no contact orders inside the jail, but seeing even for public health, how essential it is, I believe in all the dis social distancing we're doing, but just how tragic it is when seeing that uh, affect those coming out of prison that need social connection more than ever. It's a life and death issue for some. Some of us, we just, we're just bummed out that we're on Zoom all the time and get depressed, whereas the folks who live on the margins with very little contact, it's, uh, it'll throw them right back to a soft suicide, which is meth. Well, it, it strikes me that kind of what you're describing, too, is so much of what happens in prison and, you know, specifically on death row, which is this idea of, you know, we were kind of encircling this a little bit, but just to articulate it a little bit more clearly is, you know, this idea of like, it, it might be overstated to say that, you know, the system is actually killing people before they kill people. Uh, that might be a little bit too uh, over the top, but that that's what it sounds like, right? Like, and so when you have all of these systems in place meant to dehumanize and kind of degrade and to to do that separation from community and relationships. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I got, I'm just, now I'm just kind of narrating actually, but, but I, you, you unlock something there, I think, which is this interesting thing of like how quickly like we can be able to kind of operate inside of a space that I think has been held by marginalized, you know, people, like you said, the poor and the prisoners, uh, and we can kind of pivot and go around that because we don't have that kind of long-term, for lack of a better term, beat down basically of, of our psyche and our, our lack of relationships. So we're able to do this on Zoom and to kind of still connect and stay things and have like fun conversations on social media. But when you've kind of been systematically, that's been stripped away from you, 
Like this becomes just a whole new level of horror. Uh, I don't have a point. I'm just, like I said, I'm just narrating at this point. So feel free to pick up on anything I just said and and, and turn this into an actual uh, podcast worthy um, comment. <laughs> Does that make sense what I'm saying? Like I, I just, I see all of that. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm connecting dots uh, from, from our whole conversation and how that affects people in COVID and how just how much worse it, it makes it for somebody who is not from, you know, a comfortable place like I happen to be. Sure. I mean, my brain broke in like the beginning of COVID because I was a completely alone for 13 weeks and I was completely alone in a, in a nice, you know, like in a nice apartment in Virginia. Like I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't suffering. I had enough food um, and I could, I called my parents every day or whatever. And my grandparents were in town so I could drive over and see them outside. I just couldn't touch them uh, or get very close. And it was still like incredibly difficult. And I guess I don't know that much about the conditions on death row, but I'm assuming that it's like an extremely isolated uh, sort of living because of because, because we like to punish people. So I don't know. Could you just like talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, Brian, you've you've been in in relationship more with folks on death row than I have. It's just through your your, your letter writing over the years. So yeah. I might just say something real quick and pass it to you. But for me, what's what's just sad is that the incarcerated are both cut off as much as they always have been which I think is what incarceration is about, is to be cut off from the land of the living, from relationship, from reality, from being like you exist. They're, they're both being cut off as well as they're being herded together in a way that um, they're given like the wrong kind of connection, right? They're giving like, they're, they're, they're just boxed together and COVID is spreading quickly in prisons now. And so it's just, it's just a sad double screw of them both being cut off from meaningful connection and then throw it, thrown into really unhealthy biological you know box together connection so it's it's really sad and i, th I think even those on death row are probably they're they they those death row cells are like right right next to each other i don't know brian you, you tell me more about your letters and what what your friends on death row have told you about their housing their experience of isolation yeah i mean you know, I mean, the, the, the cells are not, and it, it depends, right? Your, your uh, central prison in Raleigh is going to be different than like, um, was it Angola, right? Like, which is kind of notoriously uh, terrible. But, you know, there's this thing called death row syndrome, which is a direct result of this kind of isolation. It's this thing of like prisoners waiting years for execution. And like most of us might have like an existential idea that death is coming, but the idea of living with like an ax above your head, like literally creates mental instability and mental illness that, like I said, one of the things that I, I, I feel very strongly about is that it kills these women and men way before they're actually executed. Because if you think about it, it's that they're living in cells most of the time that are sized like a parking space, um, which even if they are right next to each other, still increases, uh, the amplifies the effects of isolation. You know, uh, a lot of places stay in their cells for more than 20 hours a day. You know, and, and all of this, like one of the things that happens is like, I can't remember the exact number, but the percentage of inmates that actually die of natural causes early on death row is like far outweighs like whatever would be for like a normal healthy person in in society. So, you know, how I, I kind of talk about this is like, it's like a destruction of the human spirit, right? The execution sometimes becomes almost like a grace um, for some people because everything that's happening along the path is meant to be destroying of the spirit, the soul, uh, whatever word you want to use for that. Uh, and this is one of the things that, again, that I, I kind of referenced this at the beginning. This is also like, the, the fact that we allow this to happen, and now I straight up am preaching, but to allow that we uh, uh, allow this to happen is 
you know, it's it it breaks our collective like human spirit as well, right? So it's like that's a little bit frou frouy perhaps. But the idea of like the fact that we are allowed to like look away from the suffering or just ignore it and let it become invisible, like that hurts us, right? So like those two things are not separate. And so for me. I think what's happening in those cells and stuff and that kind of breakdown and degradation of, of the human spirit there is something that has to be paid attention, especially by Christians, especially, especially by Christians. And we've done a shitty job of, of, of following up on that in a lot of ways. Now I'm all up in my feelings. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, to pause uh, but because I forgot the original question. I just started lifting, lifting off facts and, and going straight up uh, Holy Spirit uh, preacher mode. Yeah, I don't even remember the question. So I'm going to stop. Well, d- it, it, it comes from connection, I would argue, that it wasn't just because you read books. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, you sure. you wrote people yeah. who oh, were yeah, yeah, for in, sure. on death row. The power of proximity lit that fire in you. Tell me about those relationships. Yeah, okay. I, I, yeah, now I remember the question. But, but here's the thing is like when we're having those conversations, we're not talking about death row, even though we still are, right? We're talking about oh, my friend. Yeah, yeah, same more, yeah. Yeah, and like, so like my friend Tony, right? Like I'm, I don't talk about the fact that he's on death row, right? We don't talk about that. We talk about how how in the hell a North Carolina kid became a Dallas Cowboys fan. And I like to give him so much shit about that. And then he'll, you know, figure out a way to figure out what the, how the Bears, which is my favorite football team, are doing. And then just give me all, like a whole letter just about how terrible Mitch Trubisky is. Like just a whole letter. And I was like, damn, this dude. I was like, yeah, I might not write your ass back. You keep talking shit like this. But he, so, so, so it's so like- beautiful. Right, but it's like, and that's the connection, right? Like the, the connection is, and that's the work. That's what I always tell people. Like I wrote this book about it. That's not the work. The work is actually getting to know somebody like Tony, like I do, and be able to be there and send him a book or they don't let you do that anymore. You know, you get to uh, have those conversations and learn about the stuff that, you know, like you and I, like, I know I can give you shit, Chris, about um, wearing your Bonnie Vare cap right now. And are you going out to the woods to to write a new acoustic song? I know I can do that with you because we have these different connections and you can develop that through letters, right? Like, and, and through just developing that through letters is creating them and giving them humanity back. Like, I firmly believe that, like, to be able to just to talk shit to somebody uh, in a loving and familiar way, like, that's my love language is sarcasm and talking shit, if you haven't noticed that before, either of you. But to be able to do that over the past eight years, nine years that I've been writing with this guy, that's important. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And and it, it's real. This is the first conversation you and I ever had, Chris, actually, if you remember this. Like the first time I met you, we talked about this on the ferry going over to Whidbey Island. We don't need to get into that about, and you, and you were pushing me. It's like, yeah, but how are you, how have you been vulnerable with him? And I was like, I don't know, who is this dude trying to get up and what, what are you, who are you? Get out of here. And then, and the, but, but you challenged me because that idea of like being vulnerable puts it in a place where I think, especially like progressives such as myself, Christians want to be the person who's kind of just giving love, but actually receiving love at the same time. And like putting stuff out there in a real human relationship way is super important. That's great. I'm glad I was saying that. Was it, <laughs> it probably was like 2012. Yeah, that's exactly what and, I and was. That was, before, that was before I had an incentive to like make that part of our mission or our messaging of Underground Ministries. We weren't training anybody, but I, was, I, I think... This tall dude gives me shit I, I, on I the side of is a ferry. Bit of a, I don't know if it's a detour. We're, we're going to get back to the bigger messaging. But one of my pet peeves is people telling lousy testimonies, meaning they don't tell, they're not true to what they actually experienced. They've somehow abstracted their experience and they kind of are borrowing that's plagiaristic. They've kind of borrowed this story 
And they're not actually like a poet going back to what is the felt smell and detail and what did it feel like to, you know what I mean? You ever met someone that like, you know, their conversion story is messy and beautiful and wild. And then they went to some church where they were loved and, and then you hear them step up and they grab the mic and they tell nothing about the weird, bizarre, beautiful mess of their story. But they tell this kind of like boxed flannel graph story about who they were and what God did. And it just makes me want to puke. Um, and so I, I want to not do that myself. And so part of that is me, even though I went to Berkeley and I, I, I'd like to consider myself pretty left wing, there's ways where I'm tempted to fall into the conversion language and the ideology of the left, which is very cause driven and injustice driven, which is not what motivated me. I w- it was much more small and subjective and emotional. Like I feel like reading Dostoevsky and the poets got me into being involved with incarceration more than learning about the injustices of the incarceral industry. You know, there's so many terrible injustices in society. It doesn't motivate me. That's part of what made me want to kill myself for a while in college is I was overwhelmed with all the problems of the world. And I just felt like a completely impotent, self-absorbed, just useless fuck. And I couldn't do anything. And so it was actually finding myself in kinship in the relationship of freedom and delight with people who are homeless in the park and writing letters with the incarcerated that I came alive. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's not because there is an injustice and I'm going to do something about it, but it's, it was a much more untold story of finding my own freedom in connection with and mutuality. And I'm trying to find words for it now. And it, Father Greg calls it kinship. And I think that's the right word. Father Greg Boyle, who wrote author of Tattoos on the Heart and uh, Homeboy Industries and kind of a, Jesuit hero now. He'll probably be canonized Mm. soon after he dies. But he uses the word kinship, and I think that's right. And I found kinship with the incarcerated. And that's what kept me in the game. I got into re-entry, not because I learned about the barriers. It was the opposite. I learned about the barriers to re-entry because these guys became my buddies. Yeah. Jesus only recruited a community to roll away the stone because Lazarus was his friend. The F word is right there at the beginning of the resurrection narrative. We got like, I can't tolerate this death. This is my buddy. And okay, we're going to do, we're going to raise him from the dead. And he weeps and he organizes a community. And I think we only bump up against injustices when there's, when there's relationship, when, when they're getting in the way of relationship and, and to talk about relationship is, is a, it's an, it's an emotional thing. It's a human thing. I don't know. Now I've, I went off track too, but I feel like connection and relationship and our own need for it, um, is, is part of this equation. Um, and, I, and I want to invite people into that with the work that we're doing in relationship and like what you had with the friends on death row. And because you knew, even if you were bullshitting about the bears, you grew to care about Tony. Right. Right. And then him being executed, even though he didn't need to talk. Oh, about he hasn't it, been executed. No, he's still alive. Anguished you. And it still does. No, he's still alive. Because Tony. Just to be clear, okay. he's still alive. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. But I, I guess I don't want to tell you your story, but I put a question mark on it. I'm guessing question mark that part of what, why this anguish is used, this is, this affects your friend. Yeah. And he's gotten into your heart and under your skin. Yeah. I want to see more think pieces online about that. People can't clap together during the year of COVID. <laughs> there it is. So we, we had to take a little break there uh, for just a second and, and, and uh, we realized that nobody can clap together. So we all tried to clap and it was like a four second delay anyway. So yeah. Transformation. That's a poem. Yeah. There it is. 
<laughs> uh, winter of my discontent. As as Carrie had mentioned before, winter, terrible topic for a terrible theme for a poem. Uh, shout out to a previous episode. Uh, anyway, uh, I think what you're talking about with like my connection is there's a certain amount of transformation that happens. And to me, that's a that's a, an ingredient of any kind of like theology or any kind of testimony or talking is like, how has this actually changed you, right? Like, I don't want to know the kind of glossed version. I want to know there's something happened to you and tell me about that. And, and I think that that only happens when you have that connection. Like you and I can have that, or we, us three could have that connection because we know one another. But like, until you know somebody, you can't tell that story. So there's, there's, a, there's some, I don't know, levels to that that I think are important. But I think transformation is an ingredient in what you're talking about. Even if you come in thinking that this per other person is worthy and of redemption and love, like you can still be changed by that relationship. And I think going into it, that's what's necessary. So that's my final say on the subject. I think, I think the problem is not just an awareness that transformation happens mutually or with, with us or on the, the non-incarcerated side of the wall. But I th- for me, the question is, are, are people in touch with their need for that transformation? Yeah, that's that, that's what's interesting to me. On it's, both sides, maybe it maybe it doesn't need to be scripted out with full consciousness. Like I need the transformation that comes with relationship with the incarcerated or or the yet to be executed. But if like for me, just my despair and my depression and my suicidal proclivities, I was aware that going into a jail, I wasn't going to save anybody. Like I wasn't going to broadcast it to the whole world. But like. I intermittently wanted to die. Like that really tempered my understanding of myself as Bible study leader. Right. And so I think that me being at least in touch with my need generally that I am, I am, I'm a, I'm a sad little boy who's afraid of the world and I don't know what's going to fill the huge void of my life. Being just being aware of my need, I think gave me a good approach, a good entryway so that I could receive some, some of the, the joy that was there that I would have missed if I was just intent on leading people to the Lord or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I th- I'm curious what you all think about for either for yourselves or for others. Do you think people are, are anywhere near seeing their own need for, for relationship with the incarcerated? Or is this just like we should recycle more? Uh, we should do something about this mass incarceration problem. Do, do you think people make a connection between we're throwing human beings away and that is everything they do or it might have a lot to do with what's wrong in my life. I mean, honestly, I think the answer is no. Yeah, <laughs> like, I too. don't think a lot of people are thinking about that. But, but I think that's why the work that you do is important, right? Like, I think that being the, um, like we're in Advent right now and, and the texts for in the lectionary are all about John the Baptist and a voice crying out in the wilderness. And I don't want to like, I don't want to be too on the nose about this, but I think that there is, for the people who it does kind of like break their heart or they do get kind of transformed by that relationship, then it becomes on them to tell that to tell that story, which is something that you've done, obviously. You've done that in multiple different ways. So I think it's kind of like constantly being a burr or a thorn or whatever imagery you want to use in the collective imagination of like anytime people start to get comfortable with the fact that this stuff is happening, it's it's like being like, but no, there's all this happening too, right? So like uncovering that story for people to see. I think that's part of it. Because I think, Carrie, I think you're right. I don't think most people give much thought to it until something like the, uh, the you know, like until uh, Kim Kardashian West starts tweeting about it. And they're like, oh, this guy should be off death, death rows. And then you never hear about it again 
Like, and, and that's fine. That, I, I, most people probably don't need to talk about the death penalty every day like I happen to. Like, it, it would actually, it's probably better for your emotional well-being to not be fired up and pissed off all the time and randomly firing off, you know, tweets. But at the same time, I think if that level of outrage was kind of a collective level of outrage, the shit would end. Or at least get it, stuff would start get happening a lot quicker than than if you know. I guess to be more radical about it, the system expects you to forget, right? So the next thing's going to happen, and then you know they can deal with little hot spots of of outrage, uh, but because there's no consistent outrage. So anyway, so uh, yeah, I'm trying to say is that's why we brought you on, Chris, modern day prophet, camel jacket. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think one of the, I guess the, I, I, while you were stepping away, Carrie was saying that you are part of your connection is being on Episcopal Twitter. And she was saying that although you both met as kind of like ex-Methodists, you're both Episcopalians now. And, and I wanted to, I guess, make a pitch that I met Michael Curry a couple of years ago and told him about what we're doing with One Parish, One Prisoner. And God bless him. He was just like, come, come out here and meet with our reentry council. There's like a, 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 a task force for the American Episcopal Church on uh, incarceration and reentry and my friend sam and i he was he was locked up for 28 years uh they flew us both out there and we were part of a a conversation and we we, part of that crew talked about one parish one prisoner and not everyone in the in the in the group was really hip to it there was a lot of talk about policy as opposed to getting parishioners everywhere into relationship but then we advanced what we're doing a little bit more and created some videos and i sent it back out to the organizer uh, who works on uh, bishop curry staff and he then got really pumped about it and so now we have a little bit of a backing and we want to get the word out and so if you all are working within your diocese or folks that are rightfully concerned pissed angry upset outraged about the death penalty that we want to connect these conversations that i think a lot of people are angry about the death penalty but there's like what do we do do I just get really loud and sign another online petition? Like, what do I do? And it is something you can't forget. But when you have relationship, it's not so easy to forget. And so if there's listeners out there or churches or especially folks in the Episcopalian Twitter who want to see the connection between the spectacle of death that happens on one end of the spectrum, the death penalty, and the whole broad spectrum of a culture of death and human disposal through the law, um, you can interrupt that and be in relationship with one person. And we'd really love to uh, experiment with our model in your city and with your diocese and get the church practicing some of these relationships together. That's awesome. I didn't know that. You touched, you did touch on Episcopalians love to uh, talk about policy and not have uh, actual connections with marginalized people. Mm-hmm. Policy and liturgy. It's like we skip over the rest of it. The liturgy comes next. Like, what if we wrote a liturgy about it? Uh, that's going to get me canceled. That's the cancelable take right this there. Is, this, I think what's about to get me canceled is I'm about to say Episcopalians often have a cop mindset, which is, I think in communist and like socialist circles, there's like a saying, right? First kill the cop in your own head. And that sounds very violent. And people, are, I think, are not sure what to do with it. But I think what you've been saying, Chris, is like, first kill the cop in your own head. <laughs> uh, what I've been hearing is like, if you kill that cop, <laughs> then you're, you're able to ask yourself who, was, who that cop was protecting you from, who that cop was keeping you out of relationship with. And, yeah, preach. And that's what I've been hearing you say a lot. And I think that Episcopalians especially are very bad at at actually entering into relationships, even if we want to say all the right things. So yeah, that's an, that's an exciting, exciting news. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, don't, I, 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 I like that kill the cop in your own head 
that I think that's one way of experiencing the gospel is, is, you know, the, the word we call Satan comes from the Greek for the accuser. And so it's, it's the accusing, crushing, condemning, um, policing voice inside, um, and in society. Um, and I, and I wonder if our own freedom, and I think that a lot of, I mean, I'm a, I'm a PCUSA minister now. And so I can, I can talk shit about Calvinist stream, uh, as an insider. Um, but I think just a lot of terrible things mm-hmm. got canonized within Protestant theology through Calvin, who was, a, um, who was a civic leader and, and, a, and a law keeper where God became a warden, uh, a warden of, of, of the world and law enforcement was, is the divine DNA of, of the universe, sadly. And so I think a lot of evangelical kids and evangelicals, I think are the true heirs of reformed theology, not, um, not the reformed church, but evangelicals that we have this idea that who we are is despicable inside and that it's only by grace that we're saved, but that we are just rotten through and through. And so I think that uh, we project, um, I think America is a very Calvinist nation. And I think there's a big connection between our theology and mass incarceration in America. If I could go to seminary or write a PhD, that would be it, is connecting reformed uh, theology with mass incarceration in America. So I, I guess as we're in relationship with the damned, as we're in relationship with, with the, the folks who are thrown into a civic version of hell, and we see how lovable they are, even with the worst thing that they did. And we see God's love for them. I think it starts to boomerang and it, and it started to evangelize me as an evangelical kid in the jail, thinking like, man, I'm so hard on myself. I am so hard on myself for not, for being bad, for being a liar, for all, all the evangelical reasons why I was a, thought I was a creepy little vile human being deep down inside and where I'm covering it up with my AP scores and my smile. But in all the other ways where I, in, in a leftist sense, I was down on myself for not being down with as many causes as I should. I was just so hard on myself. But then when I saw how much love there was, it almost felt like the divine love just washed through me for these fuck-ups, total fuck-ups. They beat their girlfriends. They, they, they held up liquor stores. They lied to me. And I'd feel so much love for them when we pray. I, that started to kill the cop in my head, so to say, is I started to feel like, man, then that love's available to me. I mean, if, if that love loves this guy, like how much, why am I being so hard on myself? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's perfect. Carrie, unless you have other things you want to ask. I mean, that's, that's a perfect out, right? This idea of like, this is all being rooted kind of in this kind of unexplainable. And if, if, if Isaac was here, he'd be rolling his eyes about what I'm about to say. But this like unexplainable kind of like mystery, right? This, this, this love that is beyond comprehension that's available. Uh, and I think, I, and, I, and I'll ta- try to tie a bow on it for you, that I think that maybe that's the part about seeing the other, right? Like recognizing it in yourself. You, you talked about this with the writing the letters, but seeing and experiencing and accepting that love inside yourself for all the, all the shit that you've done uh, yes. and not just being able to like it's sometimes it's actually easier just to give it to other people than it is to take it on um, and so maybe that's the place where we need to kind of I guess to land and, and think about and kind of pray within uh, to, uh, to try to just see where we go from there so because from there that's where the action comes out of that out of that place I think so anyway one more thought that just came to mind right there if there was someone listening that was not very did not have generous ears on what we're saying that uh, I would hope they would hear me and all of us um, using the phrase kill the cop as a very, very metaphorical sense that I'm not pro killing anybody. Hence the whole topic of being right. anti-death penalty. Uh, even if you have done terrible things, I, I do not advocate for the death of anyone, but I hope they would hear that as a, 
overcoming the condemning silencing of the condemning voice and maybe even embracing the inner condemner inside too, mm. as I think you were saying with more nuance than I care. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I can think I can speak for me and Brian, maybe not Isaac, that we're abolitionists. So we do not want to kill the cops. We want the cops to also kill the cop in their own head. There it is. And yeah. build a better world. To repent of the copping. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to go out with our normal uh, all takes will be revealed because, you know, this is, a, this is a topic that I think all three of us care a lot about. I tried my best not to make any jokes. I think I made one. But Chris, I, I'm, I'm so happy that you came on. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this. I'm, I'm going to do a little plug that uh, you and I and, and maybe a couple of other of your other people, the men and women that you work with, are going to be recording a podcast on the Book of Acts sometime in the near future that's going to drop on our sister podcast, uh, The People's Commentaries. So that'll be looking for that after the new year, sometime in Lent, coming up into Christmas. Uh, I'm Man, looking really forward to that. So badass! Oh, it's gonna be, it's gonna, it's gonna. I, I feel like we should probably get started early because I think it might take longer than I'm expecting because there's just so much there. So we might, we might collapse mm-hmm. it down to, to uh, maybe uh, one part of the book. But man, I, I you know. You know, I love you, uh, and I, I loved having you on here, uh, and I look forward to continuing this conversation over on that on that stream. Brian and Carrie, this has been a delight. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>